Then you better start swimming or you'll sink like a stone For the times they are changing Hi and welcome to GEMcast. I'm here with Chris Carpenter who is a leader in the world of geriatric emergency medicine. And Chris, I truly think in 20 years we will look back and say Chris Carpenter was one of the founding fathers of geriatric emergency medicine. So congratulations for all you do. Christina, I don't think that's going to happen, but thanks a lot for having me on the GEMcast again, the best podcast in geriatric emergency medicine. And the only one. So that's perfect. Yes, the best. <laughs> well, today we are going to talk about a very exciting development in the world of geriatric emergency medicine and something that I think everyone should be aware of, particularly if you are a leader in your department or are hoping to be a leader in your department, you should know about geriatric accreditation. Now, we talked almost exactly a year ago about the geriatric ED guidelines, which were a set of guidelines endorsed by SAM, emergency nurses, ASAP, just a whole group of people regarding what constitutes good geriatric emergency medicine care and in order to form a geriatric ED, what kinds of things you should have in place. Now you guys have taken this a step forward and worked with ASAP to form an accreditation system or strategy. So Chris, why don't you just say a brief word about that and then we're going to get into the details. Yeah, the accreditation thing is huge, right? We've got our major organization in emergency medicine, ASAP, telling emergency departments and hospitals, this is important enough that we're going to go to your emergency department and we're going to start to accredit you for adherence to these geriatric emergency department guidelines that multiple disciplines and multiple countries have said this is the way to care for an aging population in emergencies. Now, for some of the listeners, I can already feel the hairs on the back of your neck bristling saying, I don't want somebody to come in and tell me how to run my emergency department. But mm -hmm. I think it's really not about that. It's more about saying, how can we facilitate and encourage and foster excellent care for geriatric patients, right? Yeah, well, we hope this conversation today is going to alleviate some of those concerns. And believe me, when, when I first was approached about this idea back in 2014, the hairs on the back of my neck bristled too. <laughs> and so we're going to go through some of those objections and responses later. But first of all, why are we even thinking about geriatric EM care? What is going on with the demographics of our aging population? Well, I think any of us look around our shift and we see that the large proportion of patients and ever-increasing proportion of patients are older adults. And you just look at the numbers. In 1900, 4% of Americans were over the age of 65. By 2050, that'll be 21%. That's a five-fold increase. And, and this thing, geriatrics, came upon the scene in 1937. Before that, they'd never even thought of it because nobody lived that long. Yeah, but they, they determined that, hey, we've got to have a way to care for older adults because they're probably different than younger adults. And then 75 years ago, 1942, the American Geriatric Society was founded. Um, but we just got the successes of our medical uh, care have generated a baby boomer generation that's living unprecedented long lives and, and dealing with new problems that we had never anticipated before. It's so true. So many shifts. I look at my board and I've got octogenarians, multiple nonagenarians. I had a patient who was over 107 at one point. Um, mm. So wow. just amazing that people are living longer and living healthily, hopefully. Um, so what's the challenge in taking care of these patients? Why can't we just treat them the same way as we do our general population? 
Well, the challenge comes at several levels. One is just the sheer volume of these patients and the amount of resources that they consume if we're going to try to diagnose what's going on and to figure out from a constellation of comorbidities what it is that brought them to the emergency department today. What can I do to enhance the quality of their life by caring for them today? And what can I not do? Because we got to de-implement some things as well. And doing everything at the last, the end of life is probably not the wisest investment for us. But just look at the sheer volume of patients. Number one, between 2002 and 2012, the number of ED visits over the age of 65 increased 42% to about 18 to 19% of visits now. Look at our gross domestic product in the United States, 17.4% in 2013. They're projected to increase to 19.6% in 2024. That's not sustainable. We cannot be spending this much money. So this being the big population that we're spending money on, the big population in our emergency department that's consuming labs and imaging and time and ED beds, we've got to figure out how to do this more efficiently. And, and right now we're not doing a great job. Yeah, so one issue is just the sheer volume, the cost of care, the time-intensive nature of the care. We all know that older adults, it's not a quick in-and-out visit most of the time. They're not coming in just with a quick strep throat that you can give them some antibiotics and send home. Their care is complicated and requires a lot more time-intensive workup. But then there's also the issue of quality. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, well, the quality comes in that we've got to align the patient priorities and their preferences with the care that we're delivering and not just uh, do, do a one-size-fits-all model because some of the things that we can do doesn't mean that we should be doing them. Um, not every cancer that, that's metastasized needs to be aggressively treated in a patient whose goals of care may be completely different than, say, a 20-year-old mother of two. And so we need to be thinking about that. We also need to be thinking about the uniqueness of aging. Um, the, the uniqueness mean things like cognitive impairment, including dementia and delirium. And, and research for the last 25, 30 years in the emergency department has shown that we're missing many, many more of those patients than we're catching. You might ask, so what? So, so I can't cure their dementia. So they've got delirium. Am I going to change that? Well, if you don't detect it, you miss an opportunity to perhaps get the correct diagnosis in that cognitively impaired patient or to keep them from coming back to the emergency department if you send them home with delirium if you diagnose it correctly and figure out what's causing it. So, yeah, it is important. Yeah, it's going to have ramifications both for our ED operations, which is going to affect other populations too, younger patients, and for our cost-effectiveness of care. And I think part of quality comes in with really understanding the social situation and how that patient is going to cope at home. For example, if a 25-year-old comes in with a minor ankle fracture and you splint them, send them home with crutches, that's perfectly adequate care. If an 85-year-old comes in and at baseline they walk with a walker, there's no way you can put the splint on them and send them home with crutches. That would be terrible care, really. So you have to find ways to set up systems of case management, of rehab, of other resources in order to really provide good care. Now, I know, unfortunately, some of the early senior EDs, and maybe some currently, they um, would advertise on billboards that they were a senior-friendly ED, but there was really no substance to that. There was mm -hmm. nothing really that was different. So um, I know part of this accreditation and guideline process is to ensure that saying you're a senior ED or a geriatric ED really means something. Yeah, that was one impetus for us to develop the guidelines to begin with, is that we were looking around the nation, and, and Tess Hogan and I actually did a study, and we looked around and called these self-advertised geriatric EDs, and kudos to them for having some foresight and realizing this is a population that's going to need different emergency department care, but like you said, we need to have substance behind it. The guidelines gave substance, but you know the Institute of Medicine says it takes, on average, 17 years for 14% of the evidence to get to the bedside. 
So the guidelines alone aren't going to change practice for decades. We, and we can't wait decades. Look at that gross domestic product spending on healthcare right now. Number one cause of bankruptcy in the U.S., healthcare bills, right? We can't afford to wait long, two decades. So we looked at other options, and, and accreditation came up uh, by the ASAP board. First accreditation occurred in 1919 by the American College of Surgeons, and lots of organizations are using accreditation now to try to push principles out. You might ask, Christina, what is the benefit of accreditation? What, why should we do this? Well, you can look at the level of the patients. It's going to give increased transparency for the level of care that the geriatric patients are going to get. It's going to, hopefully, if we align with the goals of care and our available resources within our community, because it's not supposed to be a one-size-fits-all. It's supposed to fit what you have at your, in your hospital, within your community. It's going to improve the quality of life and, and hopefully do so in a cost-effective fashion that it does so with the triple aim in mind. What about the value to the members of ASAP? It's going to raise awareness of different approaches needed to deliver high-quality, value-based emergency department care for vulnerable older, older adults. That awareness uh, leaked in the knowledge translation pipeline, that this is a way to address that with accreditation. What's the value to hospitals? That value to hospitals is that it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's meant to be feasible for large and small hospitals, urban and rural hospitals. Um, and we've made the program adaptable for the community for their needs. And then you can go out in your community and advertise that we're accredited by the American College of Emergency Physicians to deliver high-quality, value-based care for our older adults. And then what's the value to ASAP? The value to ASAP is that it provides an opportunity for ASAP to work hand-in-hand -hand with organizations like the American Geriatric Society, Gerontologic Society of Aging, and AARP, as well as funding opportunities from the CDC and other organizations. In fact, I would go to Jeremy Brown in the Office of Emergency Care Research and say, now we need funding. We need funding for geriatric emergency department research, and we need it yesterday because we've got this accreditation process in place. So I think there's opportunities of value for multiple stakeholders here. And something that I really admire about uh, your group that put together the Geriatric ED Guidelines is you really tried to be as evidence-based as possible because I think that's important whenever you're saying to people, now we're going to require this accreditation or we're going to recommend it. You need to have some evidence behind it as much as possible. So let's get down to nuts and bolts. What do hospitals have to do to accredit? So there's three different tiers. You don't have to have a separate ED space and a fancy new wing in order to have a geriatric ED. Uh, you've tried to make it something that almost any hospital could attain, at least at one of the lower tiers. So tell us about that. Yeah, the, the, the easiest tier, uh, level three, kind of mimicking the level three trauma centers, is that uh, we, we designed that with the small four-bed rural emergency department with one physician and one nurse in the entire hospital, no CT scanner, no labs, very simple rural hospital. We had a member of the ASAP rural section on our committee to help us to envision that. What is What can reasonably be accomplished at that sort of a hospital? And that that is a staffing requirement. They need to have a nurse uh, and or a, one physician to provide geriatric-focused education, a resource for that department. That needs to be the go-to person, and they so can like be a nurse or a physician. A geriatrics champion, I yeah. know, as some people call that, uh, to really push things forward, help educate folks, things yes. like that. And then um, the, we didn't have any educational requirements for the level three. Um, the, a policy that the level three hospital should be able to attain is um, evidence of adherence to a urinary catheter policy. That is something that's up in the wall that nurses and physicians can refer to that shows uh, the inappropriate use of urinary catheters and the appropriate use of urinary catheters. The other tiers have sample outcomes. We have no requirements for the level three hospital. 
Um, but we do require that they have some standard equipment like a mobility aid. So something that's very attainable for that rural hospital. Level two, on the other hand, moving up, there's a pretty big leap um, in terms of our expectations. So level two hospital, we expect that they have a um, probably a physician and a nurse champion that they have ready access, doesn't mean 24-7, but re- within a reasonable amount of time, access to physical therapy and occupational therapy, social work and case managers, pharmacy, and uh, most importantly, I think, most importantly, a dedicated hospital administrator who is their champion at the C-suite level. Um, and then uh, that person needs to be identifiable and that needs to be somehow measurable, what they're doing to help the geriatric ED. I really like how this is so multidisciplinary, how you have a nurse champion, a physician champion, and then also people from the C-suite, because to really make this meaningful, I I agree that you have to have folks at all different levels working together. Yeah, and and they've got to be, you've got to have that or else this is not going to be as successful as it could be. Um, For education, we, we had wanted initially to have an educational requirement for geriatrics, and it's really hard to conceive of changing a group in a hospital's practice without focused education. But we do realize also that we're in emergency medicine in particular, getting lots of educational requirements thrown upon us by trauma, by cardiology, by stroke. We didn't want to add to that burden. So there's no specific number education requirement, but we do give access uh, to free resources that have free CME, things like geriem.com for nurses and physicians and ancillary providers in the ED, and things like geriatricED.com, which gives resources to hospital administrators to learn more about the geriatric concepts. And I'm sure we can probably put links to those up on the show notes. Um, And then there's sample policies. In these sample policies, we give a list of 26 policies and guidelines, and then we ask that the level two hospital be able to demonstrate on a random sampling of 10 charts, 75% adherence to the 10 guidelines or protocols that they've selected as what they're focusing on. And, and then the credentialing process will go on um, every two to three years on a recurring cycle. And then we also have some requirements for um, outcome measures based upon the, the protocols that they've selected and some standard equipment that we expect the level two hospitals to be able to obtain. And then level one adds on a, a bit more about um, the, the staffing. We ask that a patient advisor be added to the group. So you, you've got everything that level two has, but we add on a patient advisory group. Um, and then the same requirements uh, for sample policies and measures, except we increase the percentage that should be documented and be attainable. So it, it's a tiered system that is very explicit about what we expect to be measured, how we're going to be measuring it. We haven't still determined how that's going to occur, but we're working on the, that exact process right now. Now, this all sounds like it is somewhat, especially the level two and level one, resource and personnel intensive. Are there any financial incentives to do this? Well, it, there will be a fee that ASAP charges to get accredited. Um, we haven't determined exactly what that fee is going to be. The anticipation is that once accredited, though, just like uh, being a niche hospital or being a, um, a, a accredited for level one trauma care, that you're able to attract a, um, a population of patients that um, can be beneficial for the hospital. We expect that the ramifications for marketing as a geriatric-friendly hospital is going to um, more than recoup the cost of getting accredited for the hospitals. And one of the other things that Mark Rosenberg, who's an emergency physician and started one of the biggest and most successful geriatric EDs up in New Jersey, he always talks about how this pays for itself. Having case management, having physical therapy, able to work with patients can allow them to be discharged instead of admitted. And there's a lot of other ways in which just having a good system in place not only attracts patients, but also provides good care and ultimately is cost saving. 
yeah, I think I'm, I'm the evidence-based medicine guy, right? So I try as much as possible to have some basis for what I claim. Um, and, and I don't know that we can prove that contention. I, I think it's true in, in my heart of hearts. I think that that's true, that the ED has become much more the front porch of the hospital than the front door of the hospital that it historically was. Um, but I think we need to prove that. We need to show once accreditation starts that there is a, a value to the patients and to society as a whole in terms of keeping more patients out of the hospital appropriately and uh, maintaining health and well-being. Absolutely. Now, as we mentioned at the beginning, there are some people who are not as excited about this. And some of the healthy criticisms that they've given are things like, Emergency providers already know how to manage geriatric patients. We do this all the time. We don't need any additional guidelines or education. How would you respond to that? Yeah, Christine, I think healthy skepticism is it's necessary. It's, an, it's anticipated and we need it. We need it to polish these ideas into something that is workable and feasible and doesn't cost more to do than it actually helps. So the, the, that first criticism, we know what we're doing. Um, I, I do think there's an element of we don't know what we don't know. Mm because most of us in our residency didn't get a lot of geriatric training. Um, for those that say that they're already doing this, I would ask, um, what fall screening instrument are you using? Which one specifically? Um, which dementia screening instrument are you using? And, and once you interpret that a patient's got dementia, that's a new diagnosis, what referral protocols do you have in place to get them quickly to the care that they need? And how you engage in shared decision-making and consent with patients with cognitive impairment and their families? I, I think the answer to most of those is, well, I don't know. I'd never thought about that. And I think that's the point. I think there's, there's ample literature. There's 20 years worth of literature, probably 30 years worth of literature, showing that we miss so many cases of dementia and delirium, that we are not appropriately de-implementing for um, polypharmacy, and that we have an opportunity to prevent some future falls, and, and we're missing that opportunity. I think if my residents are listening, they may roll their eyes because they get so much geriatric training just because of where we are. But there's a lot of things that we haven't touched on. Now, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but what is the evidence or is there any evidence that geriatric EDs improve costs or outcomes? And of course, outcomes are what we're most interested in. We want to improve care, improve the health and the life of our older patients. But if something is not cost effective, it's just not going to fly. Yeah, this is a real challenge. Um, there isn't much research out there, to be sure. Um, but the initial research around EDs that have adapted uh, for an aging population demonstrate reduced admission rates but no changes in ED returns or hospital length of stay. Other studies indicate that efforts to improve the detection of vulnerable older adults in ED settings actually increase short-term use of referrals and outpatient resources, but with the benefit of decreased functional decline. The, de the evidence is really sparse. Again, we need research. We need money to do that research, and we've never had it before, particularly for this aging population. I think that the status quo is probably unacceptable. The lack of firm geriatric EM education at most residencies, UNC Chapel Hill set aside. <laughs> um, and, and I think that it is right to be skeptical and it is absolutely appropriate that the accreditation be held to the fire, prove, prove value, um, that the guideline developers be held to task, prove value, show that this improves outcomes, efficiencies at a same or lesser cost, but also at the level of the Office of Emergency Care Research and the NIH. We need the funds to do that research. It's what we can't pull it out of a magic hat. And of course, geriatric ED, this is not the first accreditation. We've been doing pediatric, stroke care, cardiac care, trauma, similarly with the three levels. And we've been doing that for a while. Is there any evidence that that kind of accreditation in general improves medical care? Yeah, I think that's an important place to look. Trauma center accreditation usually occurs at the level of the state. And there is evidence that patients transferred with acute trauma 
do better at a level one center, particularly the most more seriously ill and injured. Stroke certification occurs through the Joint Commission, and chest pain centers are usually accredited through the Society of Cardiovascular Patient Care. There is some evidence that patients uh, that go to stroke centers have higher quality care as defined by the neurologist, which is more of them get thrombolytics for acute stroke. (laughs) So you could argue that's higher, lesser quality. I'm not going to get into that debate. But there is some evidence out there that by whatever metric you define as quality, the quality does increase with accreditation and and patients that go to those accredited centers versus non-accredited centers. Now, most emergency physicians like being jacks of all trade. We enjoy doing geriatrics, pediatrics, doing all sorts of things. And it seems like in some sense, we're fragmenting a little bit. Now we have pediatric EDs, we have stroke centers of excellence and cardiac centers of excellence. So is this almost a step backward for our specialty? Some people certainly view it that way, and, and I can see that perspective. Emergency medicine, we pride ourselves on being the physicians on an airline. There's an emergency. Who are you going to call, the radiologist or the emergency physician? I'd rather have the emergency physician trying to evaluate me and figure out what's going on. So we don't want to fragment so much that we are ineffective at doing what we need to do for any patient that walks through the door. On the other hand, our young specialty, as I already talked about, has not done a terrific job of applying geriatric principles to an aging population. And if there are other ways to do that besides what we've already done, which is develop quality indicators, high yield research priorities, core competencies for EM residents and geriatrics that ABEM then put on the uh, exams, um, and and then guidelines. If there's other ways that we can do that beyond all that that we've already done, because that really hasn't changed practice significantly yet, I'm all ears, as is the rest of the accreditation committee. I'm not sure that those other ideas exist. If they're out there, though, let's hear them on the blog. Absolutely. And I do think it's great that you've set it up so that a small four-bed rural hospital in the middle of Nowheresville can do this, or a medium-sized hospital in St. Elsewhere can do it, all the way up to a large tertiary trauma center in, a, in an urban environment. But, you know, most of the recommendations in the geriatric ED guidelines and the accreditation, they seem like they would be good for patients of all ages. So why focus on geriatrics? Why not just make it a general guideline? Yeah, I think some of these recommendations, uh, like appropriate temperature and lighting and appropriate day-night differentiation and, and comfortable beds, not those hard beds that we have that you can get ulcers on or uh, pressure ulcers on, I, I think all that would be beneficial to all populations. They're all going to say, yeah, I like this emergency department a whole lot better. Um, but younger populations don't get dementia, right? They don't get dementia traditionally, and, and they don't get delirium uh, nearly as frequently as older adults, and they get it for different reasons. I think that there are unique aspects of geriatric care that don't apply to younger populations. So I don't think designing emergency departments for younger populations is necessarily going to improve older adult care, whereas designing emergency departments uh, and emergency department operations for older adults is very likely to improve care for older adults and younger adults. So I think that this is an opportunity to improve care for all populations, including our old patients, which is also going to increase access to emergency departments because they're not going to be stuck in beds or returning to the emergency departments and clogging our waiting rooms if we can do this and do this well. Absolutely. To summarize, ASEP now is accrediting geriatric EDs for the first time ever. Why should people do this? Well, I think this is our opportunity to steer the ship. You know, with with the healthcare system the way it is, with a bankrupt Medicare system by 2028, somebody's going to do this. Somebody is going to tell us how to care for these patients. I'd much rather it be us than some administrator in Washington or in our state capitals. We've got to choose. We've got to choose wisely, but we've got to choose quickly. And I, I think this is the best available option right now. We need every listener to tell us how we can do this better.
It's not perfect. I'm, I'm the first to admit that. I want more evidence. I want to show that this works. But if there's a better idea out there, let us know. Well, Chris, thank you so much for being here and speaking with us about it. Listeners, if you have comments, thoughts, criticisms, feel free to leave a comment on the blog, gempodcast.com. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks. Thank you. And Chris, I guess you could say the times are a changing. Was a loser now, will be later to win. For the times they are a changing.